0: 1 Samuel chapter 16, I want to welcome you this morning, glad that you are here, very excited about uh, our time in the Word today. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to kick it off in verse 1, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son to rescue us, Lord, to come and, and when we were lost, that you saved us you pulled us out of the pit and you've set us upon a rock and you've given yourself to us and you've given us your spirit to help us just walk with you and live for you. And God, we just desire today that you would speak to us through your word in Jesus name amen amen well hey as Jason mentioned on Wednesday night we are going through the book of first Samuel and on Wednesdays we take a wide angle look at the passage at scripture we'll cover several chapters but on the weekends we're also in first Samuel and we will uh, take out our telephoto lens and zero in on a particular subject and today I'm super excited because we are beginning an eight-week series on one of my favorite characters in the entire Bible and that being the person of David. And David is very, very unique. He is unique in his title because he is the only person in the entire Bible that is given this description that David was a man after God's own heart. So David is unique in his title. David is also unique in his coverage. Because you see, David is mentioned in the Bible more than any other person, three times more than both Abraham and Moses. He's mentioned even more than Jesus Christ. His name is mentioned over 1,100 times in the Bible, including 58 times in the New Testament. Four books and 65 chapters of the Old Testament tell his life story. He wrote at least 73 of the Psalms, and, and in the 30 centuries since his death, he's been painted, sculpted, idealized, and immortalized. In fact, parents today still name their kids after this man, David. So David is unique in his title. He is unique in his coverage. But David is also unique in his failings. And this is the interesting thing. If you're new to studying the Bible, this is one of the things I love about God's word is that in his word, God reveals to us, he shows us his heroes. We see the heroes of the Bible in warts and all. I mean, we see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And in David's life, there is a lot of ugly. And what's interesting is is God knowing that, God knew all these things would be about David's life, and he still chose him. What did God know about David? Well, God knew that David would be prone to battles with depression. God knew that David would multiply wives. God knew that David would commit adultery. God knew that David would commit murder. And God knew that David would fail miserably as a father. And yet, God still chose him. Yes, it's true that David failed big time. And a lot of times when people hear, you know, David was called the man after God's own heart, they go, I don't get that. I read his story and he did all of these things wrong. And that's true. But David is unique in his failings in this way. David failed. But in every instance where David fails, he repents. He changes. He turns back to the Lord. Unlike Saul, who we've seen, Saul will get, be sorry. He'll be sorry for his sin, but he never repents. He never changes. David does. So David is unique in his title. He is unique in his coverage. And he is unique in his failings. So what was it about David that attracted the heart of God. Well, that's what we want to discuss today. The title of the message today is The Basis of God's Choice. But before we get to that, let's, let's kind of set up the scene. When we come to 1 Samuel chapter 16, Saul has been the king in Israel now for 27 years. And as we've seen, Saul was, he would have won the People's Choice Award because Saul was tall, dark, and handsome. I mean, he was the kind of guy that people just looked at and go, I'm voting for him, you know? I mean, he was the kind of guy that just looked good on the cover of a magazine, good on on, on the screen. He was just, uh, he looked like a leader. But the problem with Saul was because of his pride and disobedience and his unrepentant heart. His was a quick demise. So roughly two years after he becomes king, God rejects him. Now Saul's going to stay on the throne though for almost 40 years. But most of those years would be marked by an absence of God's leading and an absence of God's anointing. When we come to chapter 16, it's time for God to do a, a new focus, a new man, a new day. And so he commissions Samuel to go down to the house of Jesse. We pick it up in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons." And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one that I named to you. And Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? Pause there and let me have your attention. Here we see Samuel's commission. And the first thing that we want to note here is when God calls Samuel, Samuel is still grieving over Saul. God was ready to do a new thing, but Samuel was still grieving over the old thing. And you know what? We oftentimes do that as well, don't we? God's wanting to do something new. He's wanting to lead us in a new way, and we're you know, still hung up on the past. We're still wrestling with that. Samuel loved Saul. He saw the potential in Saul. He was just sickened by Saul's demise. It grieved his heart, and so he's grieving, and I just want to tell you this, that it's okay to grieve. When something bad happens or when, you, when there's a loss, it's okay to grieve. And don't let anybody ever tell you that it's not. God made you to be an emotional human being. He made you with emotions. In fact, I think it's a great mark of a man or woman of God when they grieve over the sins of others, when they grieve over their, their own sins. And I think when when sin no longer grieves the heart of a pastor or a ministry leader, it's time for them to do something else. So it wasn't a bad thing that Samuel was grieving. He was discouraged. We must remember that God never will allow his work to die with the death or the failure of a man. You see, if it's God's work, it goes beyond any man. So Samuel's grieving, and God comes to him and says, Samuel, you've grieved enough. It's time to get with the program. I want to do a new thing. And so he tells him to fill his horn with oil, go down to the the, the city of Bethlehem, and he is going to anoint one of David's sons. And this leads us to the second thing that we want to note about Samuel is that this is a good reminder of how God leads us, that God leads us one step at a time. And you know, if we're honest, we don't like that, do we? You know, we wish God would just lay out the whole picture. You now we wish that God would go, okay, here's point A, and here's point C, and here's everything in between, go. But he doesn't do that. God doesn't give Samuel play by play. He says, no, go, and I'm going to lead you. Once you get down there, I'll show you what to do. And that's what God does with us. That's how God leads us so often is that he says, look, go, get up out of your seat and go, take that step of faith. And some of you right now, this is a word from the Lord for you. Because you see, you've been sitting there and going, God, I want you to lead me. And God's already told you what the first step is. But you're sitting there going, Lord, I want to know what the next step is. And he says, no, no, no. I'll give you the next step once you take the first step. And we see that example here in the life of Samuel. Let's look at the third thing we see is that uh, Samuel had developed quite a reputation. Look at the end of verse 4. If, you're, you know, not, if you haven't read 1 Samuel before, if you weren't here on Wednesday night, it might seem a little confusing to you when you read that the elders of the city in Bethlehem hear that Samuel, the man of God, is coming, and they're trembling, and they're afraid, and they're asking, are you coming peacefully?" Well, here's why. Back in chapter 15... Samuel personally took care of Saul's disobedience here's what happened God told Saul to go into battle against the Amalekites and he was to destroy all of them and he went out and Israel was victorious and they slaughtered the Amalekites but this is what Saul did he brought the king King Agag of the Amalekites back as sort of a trophy okay and he brings them back, and, and he's kind of you know all excited about the victory and what they had and you know how God helped them. And, and Samuel comes up and goes, What are you doing? What is he doing here? God told you to destroy them. And Samuel or Saul goes into this big thing and gives this excuse. Oh, well, yeah, I was doing this and that. And then it says in 1 Samuel 15 that Samuel asked Saul for his sword. And I don't know why, but every time I read this story, I picture in my mind Gandalf, okay, from Lord of the Rings, you know, as Samuel. Samuel takes the sword, and he goes up to Agag, and it says he hacks him into pieces. Who needs to go to the movies, right? Just read the Bible. I mean, that's awesome. He hacks this guy into pieces. So Samuel had gained quite a, a reputation after chapter 15. And so they hear, you know, the elders hear Samuel's coming to town and they're like, is he carrying a sword or a staff? You know, does he look happy or does he look mad? And so they ask him, are you coming peaceably or are we in trouble too? We pick it up in verse five. And he said, peaceably, I come to sacrifice to the Lord. So sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And I want to pause there for just a moment. Because here we see a reminder of something we talked about several weeks ago. That preparation is to precede worship. And remember, a couple of weeks ago, I shared with you how when we gather together like this, when we come together in, in, in a church setting like this, that the Bible tells us when two or more are gathered together in my name, that I am there in the midst. And so we know, because a lot of us here, if not all of us here, we've gathered together. We sang, His is the name. We're gathered together here in the name of Jesus. But. I mentioned to you that there is a difference between God being in our midst and him manifesting his presence. And when he manifests his presence, it's different. It's like you can feel it. It's like the, the, the glory, the, the, the presence of God, his spirit is just thick in a place. And, and that happens. Usually for that to happen, there's a preparation that precedes the anointing. And that's what we see here that we need to prepare our hearts. And Samuel says to these guys, he says, prepare your hearts, sanctify yourselves to seek the Lord. And so they do that. And then it says that Jesse lines up all of his sons, the magnificent seven, all seven of them. We pick it up in verse six. And so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And here we're given our first insight into the basis of God's choice. The type of person that God chooses to use, number one, is the person who has the right heart. God uses the person who has the right heart. Now, some of you right now are thinking, oh, that rules me out, man, I'm a mess. But listen to me. You see, that's what Jesus can do. That's what Jesus does. Jesus changes our hearts. Jesus can do a work in our hearts. Jesus can make us new. And when we're yielded to him, Jesus can can do a great work. So don't tune me out just yet, okay? Okay. The type of person that, that God chooses, the, the basis of God's choice we see here is, is contrary to human reasoning. God says to Samuel, the Lord doesn't see as man sees. You know, man, when he looks at another man or another woman, he, he, we focus on the outward appearance. And that's what Samuel was doing. Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, man, God, oh, this guy is awesome, great choice. Because here's the thing, Eliab looked just like Saul. He was tall, dark, and handsome. He was head and shoulders above his brothers. I mean, he looked like a, a great leader. I mean, he was today maybe, you know, the Bradley Cooper, Channing Tatum, Zac Efron, you know, type of guy that all the girls would be. like, Oh, he's so cute. You know, I mean, that would have been Elia. Okay. He would have had his little following. But God says, I've refused him. And he says to him, he goes, this is the deal, Samuel. This is what you need to understand. Man looks on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. You know, in our society, we base so much on qualifications, credentials, and first impressions. But a lot of times, first impressions can be a facade, It's not the real thing. It's like going to Disneyland, you know, and you see that frontage of some building. Oh, that looks so cool. And then you walk in and it's an office building, you know, or you go to some movie set and you see this great set that looks incredible and you walk through the door and it's a warehouse and you're like, you know, what is the deal with that? Things aren't always what they seem, are they? First impressions can be very, very deceiving because a lot of times what happens is when you get a chance to see beneath the surface, you see that what's beneath the surface isn't very deep and it isn't very real. Perhaps you heard the story about the man who fell in love with the opera singer. It didn't matter that he only saw her from the third balcony looking through binoculars. But he thought to himself, man, with a voice like that, oh, man, he just fell in love. He thought that voice was incredible. And so he didn't notice that she was considerably older than him. He He didn't notice that she walked with a limp. And they end up having this, you know, hurry up whirlwind romance and a hurry up wedding. And they're, they're on their honeymoon getting ready for their first night together. And he looked in horror as she took out her glass eye and put it on the nightstand next to her. And then she pulled off her wig, and then she takes off her false eyelashes, and she yanks out her dentures, and then she unstraps her artificial leg, and then she she ends up taking off her her, uh, hearing aid, and he looks at her and he says, for goodness sake, woman, sing, sing. (laughs) Things aren't always what they seem on the surface. And when God was looking for a person, He isn't interested so much in their ability or their talent or what a person has to offer on the outside or on the surface. He's more concerned about who that person is on the inside. He's more concerned about the fiber of their heart. Eliab didn't pass the test. I love in his book, The Making of a Man of God, Alan Redpath writes this incredible commentary on uh, the life of David, and he says this, when God chooses to build a man, he looks for different timber. You see, it didn't matter how good Eliab looked because God said, I have refused him. So what was it about David that caught God's eye? Well, back in chapter 13, here's what happens. Saul's getting ready to go into battle. He wants to offer a sacrifice. He's waiting for Samuel to come. Samuel's delayed. So Saul does what only the prophet and only a priest was supposed to do. He offers the sacrifice. And this is kind of the final straw with God. Samuel shows up and goes, what have you done? And here's the deal, Saul. God wants you to know he's rejected you. And he has chosen, he has sought for himself a man after his own heart. That's what God saw in David. That David was a man after his own heart. But what does that mean? What does it mean that David was a man after God's own heart? Well, if you're taking notes, I think it means two things. First of all, it means that David had a heart like God's. That David had a heart like God's. You see, God watched David, who was at this time probably about 13 to 15 years old. And he's out in the wild there with the sheep he's a shepherd boy that's his job he takes care of his dad's sheep and God's looking at David and he's watching him and he just is seeing him with the sheep and how he handles the sheep and God is thinking to himself you know what I love the way that kid takes care of sheep because you see God describes his people he says you and I he says we're like sheep now before you you know get all warm and fuzzy over that thinking, oh, sheep are so cute and so cuddly. Listen, sheep are the dumbest animals that God made, okay? And that's who he compares us to. God doesn't say, all oh, we like dolphins have gone astray, okay? <laughs> Golf, dolphins are really smart. Sheep are dumb. Sheep need to be led. They need to be cared for. Sheep need a shepherd, And God knows that. And he knows that we're like that. And so he's looking at David and he goes, I love the way that that kid takes care of sheep. And I want a king who's going to take care of of my people and shepherd them with my heart. This is my man, this young little boy. So first of all, it means that David had a heart like God. But secondly, it means, listen close, that David was after God's heart. In other words, David was a pursuer of God. Which is why David had a heart like God's. Because you see, the first is the byproduct of the second. David had a heart like God because David pursued God. David wanted to know God. David pressed in and as he sought to know God, his heart became more like the Lord's. And that's what happens to anybody that seeks after him. David was a man who longed for God. He wrote in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And we picture this deer running through the forest and he's running and running and he's thirsty and he finally comes to that river and he sticks his face in and he's drinking all up. That's what David said. That's what my heart is like. God, I just want more of you. My heart longs for you. My heart thirsts for you. In Psalm 27, David said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and behold the beauty of the Lord. David had a passion for God. One thing I've desired, but it wasn't just a desire. You see, oftentimes for us, we desire something. Oh, I want to get closer to God. But that's, that's as far as it goes, not with David. David said, Lord, I want to know you. And then he says, and I'm going to seek after that. One thing I've desired of you. David's passion was knowing God. And listen, listen close. And it was only when David gets off track in his life, the reason why in every instance is because we see that his passion ceased to be knowing God. Every single time in David's life, when we follow him and look at him, in the weeks to come, what we're going to see is when David gets himself in trouble, it's because David is no longer pursuing after God. And that's what happens so often to us as well. So we see, first of all, God looks first and foremost for people who have the right heart, people who are after his heart. Can I ask you today, what is your one What's the one thing that makes your heart jump? What's the one thing that gets you excited? What's the one thing that gets you out of bed each morning? Is it Jesus? You know, I love when Paul the Apostle writes in in Philippians chapter 3. And when he writes there in Philippians, he has been a Christian for 30 years. For 30 years, he's been following Jesus, starting churches, preaching Christ and the gospel. But Paul writes there in the third chapter of the book of Philippians, everything I've gained, I've counted as loss that I might know Christ. And not only have I counted it as loss, but I continue to count it as loss. I lay it aside that I might pursue Knowing Jesus. And then he makes this statement. This one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and looking forward to what lies ahead. I lay it all aside and I press toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus to know him and to serve him. That's what what Paul was about. And that was after he'd been walking with Jesus for 30 years. And I think that, you know, some of us would think, come on, Paul. You've been walking with Jesus preaching all that for 30 years. Don't you know him by now? And if Paul could answer, he would say, "Yes, I know him." But there is so much more of him to know. So that's my passion. That's what I'm about. I want to know Jesus. You know, this is what we need to understand. That's the starting point. It's knowing Christ. If you're here today, You don't know Jesus. You've never opened up your heart to Jesus. Or maybe, you know, at one point you did, you said a prayer, went forward at some service, tried to do the religious thing, and that's what got you messed up. Because, you see, the starting point isn't about religion. It's about relationships. It's about knowing him. It's about walking with Jesus. God wants you to know him. In fact, Jesus said, John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life that you would know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And the word in the Greek to know there is gnosko, and it means to know him intimately in a relationship. And that's where it starts. If you're here today and you don't know him or you've walked away from him, I want to invite you at the end of our service today, give your heart back to Jesus Enter into that relationship with Him, but it's not just the starting point; it's also the middle points. You see, this life is all about Jesus. It's about walking with Jesus through every single season and every single aspect of our journey with him. And it's not just the starting point, the middle point, but it's also the ending point. In First John chapter 3, verse 2, we're told that when we get to heaven, we're going to see him and we're going to discover that we are like him. It's all about Jesus. Amen? So God chose David first and foremost because David had a heart that longed for God. And the big idea in this first point is that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Let's continue in our story, though. Verse 8, it says, so Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. So Jesse has all seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. I love, again, what Alan Redpath has to say about this. Samuel's seven sons represented the perfection of the flesh. Outwardly, they fit the criteria, but God is not interested in refining the flesh. So what happens? Well, verse 11, And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? And then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is the one. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord... Came upon David from that day forward. And so Samuel arose and went to Ramah. What is the basis of God's choice? What is the the type of person that God chooses? First and foremost, number one, we see that God uses people who have the right heart. Number two, though, we see here, God uses ordinary people. Look back at verse 11. I want you to notice the word youngest. When Jesse says, well, there is the youngest. In that culture, the the word youngest referred to the least. So Jesse is not holding back here whatsoever. There's no secret of his estimation of David. David is insignificant and unimportant in his eyes. He is so insignificant that Jesse doesn't even invite him to the little ceremony. But I want you to notice, okay, look at verse 11 again. It's not like Jesse was far out in the wilderness with, you know, he was going to have to send a servant on a day's journey. I mean, notice what it says. Samuel goes, do you have another son? He goes, well, yeah, there is the, the youngest, there is the least, and, and there he is, you know. He's right over there, meaning David was in eye shot of the whole thing, probably was in earshot that Jesse could say, hey, David, come over here. But David was so insignificant in his dad's eyes that he didn't even bother calling. Oh, it can't be that guy. It can't be that son. It can't be David. But understand this. David might have been insignificant in his dad's eyes, but he was not insignificant in God's eyes. You ever feel insignificant? You ever feel like no one sees you, no one notices you? Listen, you might not be visible to others, but you are still valuable to God. And you need to understand that. Others might not see you, but God sees you. And God loves to work through ordinary people. Why does he do that? Why does he so often choose the least expected? Well Paul answers that question in First Corinthians chapter one verse 26. He says, "For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh and not many mighty and not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no fear." flesh should glory in his presence as it is written. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God says, look, my ways are different than yours. And God says, I'm going to take the ordinary person and do the extraordinary with him." I'm going to take the person who is least expected by others, the person who is invisible to them, but he's visible and valuable to me so that when I do a work in their lives and people look and they hear their story and they look back and they see where they've come from, that they realize that the work that has been done is a work of God. So who did God pick? In the mid 1960s, when God wanted to reach the hippies in Southern California, did He pick a hip, long haired musician, hippie guy? No. He picks a middle aged, balding pastor by the name of Chuck Smith and starts a revival. Who does God pick? When he wants in the beginning of the 19th century to raise up an evangelist to preach the gospel all over the United States and all over the world, does he go to the the seminaries and pick the brightest, sharpest student in the seminary? No, he picks an uneducated shoe salesman by the name of D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody was so uneducated that seminary students would actually go to his sermons. They'd sit in the front row, and they would take notes of all the grammatical errors that he would make during his preaching. And one time after he was preaching, one of them came up to him and said, you know, Mr. Moody, I, I counted 25 grammatical errors in the first five minutes of your sermon, to which Moody responded. He said, look, I'm using all the English I know to tell people about Jesus, what are you doing with yours? I love that response, you know. I've always loved that story because when I first started preaching here, precious sweet ladies in the church would write me notes of all the grammatical errors that I would make, you know, in words I would make up and, you know, that type of thing. And And then it stopped. And recently I said to my wife, I said, you know, I must be getting better because I haven't gotten any of those notes anymore. And she said, no, I think they've just given up. (laughs) But hey, I'm using all the English I know to tell people about Jesus, right? That's what matters. When God was looking for a new voice in the mid 1900s, who does he pick? He goes to North Carolina. And he picks this tall, lanky, unknown farm boy by the name of William Graham. That's so often what God does. He picks the ordinary in order to do the extraordinary. So that when people look and they go, how did that happen? And they go, that had to be a work of God. And to be honest with you, that's the only kind of work that I want to be a part of. Amen? So, Jesse had his seven sons pass before Samuel. Seven is the number of perfection, but eight is the number of new beginnings. And God is going to do a new work in Israel, a work that is going to need a new man, an ordinary man who had the right kind of heart. So God uses those who have the right heart. God uses those who are ordinary. And finally, God uses those who are faithful. And here's what I want you to see. Where was David when he was called? He's out with the sheep. And you know, we've sort of romanticized the whole idea of being a shepherd in the Bible, but we need to understand this. The shepherd in the Bible, dating all the way back to the time in in Exodus with the children of Israel, the the family of Jacob, the, the shepherds were the lowest class in that society. And the shepherd was the lowest job in the family. It was for the lowest servant, again, which is interesting because who's tending the sheep in Jesse's family? It's his youngest son because he's the least. He's the one, that kid, you know, Samuel goes, you have another son? Well, yeah, you know, I got this one kid. He's kind of weird. He's out there with his harp and playing music and picking up stones for his slingshot, you know. We're kind of safer here with him out there, you know, type of thing. That's where David is. He's out there with the sheep. But we see this about David is that David is being faithful in the little things. You see, David, we see here, has a humble heart. He's a humble guy. And the Bible tells us, hey, if you be faithful in the little things, you'll be exalted with much. And that's what God saw in David. He saw a humble servant. David's not seeking the limelight. He's faithfully tending his father's sheep, and God saw that and rewarded him. The Bible tells us in Psalm 75, verse 6, Promotion comes not from the east or from the west, but from the Lord. And again, the Bible tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And again, that's the problem with some of you here. Your problem, the the reason why you haven't given your heart to God is because of your own pride. Oh, I just can't understand how someone could come out of the grave. And you need to humble yourself because the Bible says this. Those who exalt themselves, they'll be humbled. But those who humble themselves, they'll be exalted. For others of you, you already know the Lord. But again, this is the issue that that is kind of keeping you from going forward. It's your own pride that you're like, you know, man, I've been around here long enough that, you know, I'm not doing that job. I'm not signing up for that. You know, I deserve something better than that. You know, I've been around a while. I I deserve a title. You know, they ought to call me something or give me a badge. And we think that way. God says, I don't want you to be like that. That wasn't David. David was humble. He was humble in his heart. And God sees that. And he rewards him for it. Listen, you don't need to try to make a name for yourself. You don't need to try to get others to notice you. I think heaven is going to be filled with people and they're going to be the ones that are up front. You know, guys like Jason and I, we're going to be way in the back, okay? Because we get so much of our reward here. But there's, heaven's going to be filled with people that no one ever knew, no one ever saw, but God saw. And he saw they were faithful to pray and faithful to do the little things. And faithful to to serve when no one else was looking but God. Precious brothers and sisters, can I encourage you to quit waiting for others to pour something on you. And to realize that God already has. He's already anointed you with his spirit. And you don't need a better assignment in order to experience a greater anointing. This is what's interesting about the story of David is David is anointed as king. Samuel pours the oil upon him in front of everybody. And then Jesse sends him right back out to the sheepfolds. And David's not like, hey, I got oil on my head. He's like, okay. Jesse's like, yeah, you got oil on your head and you're going to have sheep on your hands. Get back out there, you know. (laughs) We'll see in the next chapter that his dad's going to send him on a little errand and he doesn't complain. He just goes. And sometimes we want more power for a new position when in reality, God sometimes wants to give us his power to be consistent in our present calling. And we see that in the life of David. David doesn't know that in the next chapter, we'll see it next week, that he's going to go and take down Goliath. David doesn't know that, but God did. And God knows that it's the field that makes you fit for the fight. It's the field that makes you fit for the fight. And God looks for those who are faithful. Those who realize, I have nothing to prove and only one to please. And that one is Jesus. So, who does God use? He uses those who have the right heart who have, first of all, given their heart to Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you haven't done that, or you did it one time and you've walked away from him, that's the starting point for you today. You just need to give him your heart. You need to let Jesus cleanse your heart, forgive you of your sins, cleanse you of your guilt, and for you to start new today in following him. And then God uses ordinary people people that are just normal, that say, God, I got a heart. Here I am. You can use me. You can work in my life. And then God uses those who are faithful with what he puts before them. Precious church, understand this. God, he wants to use all of us. Because the last time I looked around, you know what I discovered? We're a bunch of ordinary people. Nothing extraordinary about any of us here, but that excites me, because God says, you're the type of people that I can work through. That doesn't mean He doesn't use people to have great gifts, and he does, as long as their heart is right. But oh, be encouraged today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your love that you love us unconditionally. We thank you, God, that you have worked in our hearts by your Spirit. And for all of us here who know you, God, we thank you so much for the reality that we can live in a relationship with you because of what Jesus Christ did. And God, I pray for anybody here in this room who Sitting here today, they know. They know deep down that their heart is not right with you. But they need to give their heart to you today. That you are calling them out of their sin. And you're calling them to live in in relationship with you. And so God, I pray right now in this moment, Lord, that they would make that decision to follow you today with all of their heart our head bowed and our eyes closed i just want to ask today if you are here today and you know that you're like you know what i need to get right with god i need jesus to forgive me of my sins i need to start walking with him again or walking with him for the first time if that's you i want you just to acknowledge that by lifting up your hand and i want to pray for you anybody at all that would say yes i i know i need to get god bless you anyone else God bless you. I'll see you in the back. I'll see you down here. God bless you. I want to give your heart to Jesus. Maybe for the first time. Maybe a recommitment. Anyone else? Real quickly. God bless you. Father, I pray for these right now who have raised their hand, and I pray God that you would do a work in their hearts today by your Spirit. That today would be the day a new beginning for them, of walking with you and living for you. If you raised your hand, I'd like you just to, in the quietness of your heart, just tell Jesus this. Just repeat this after me, just meaning this with all your heart. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. I give you my heart today, fully and completely. And from this day forward, I want to walk with you. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for... Our brother David and the fact that, Lord, even though he failed so much, that you worked so mightily in him. And that gives all of us here great courage, God, great comfort. And we want to just be yielded to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.